0: We've talked about foraging for food of the leafy green variety, but what about foraging for the creepy crawly variety? We'll talk about edible bugs and try to make it sound delicious. For today's Summit Gear review, a true backpacking classic finds its place in our pack. Then, instead of jumping at every twig snap you hear in the forest, We'll teach you how to be the one doing the twig snapping. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. Well, this episode is coming out on Halloween Day. A day where we celebrate gross stuff. It's just like everything gross you can think of. Just right out there on the front lawn. It's a holiday that completely confuses me. But in keeping with this odd American tradition, we're gonna see how much Halloween-appropriate material we can cram into today's episode. We can promise parasites, nematodes, bacteria, bugs, crackling sounds in the woods, and of course, blood.
1: Mm, it just <laughs> sounds great. Sounds
0: great. And we're wearing our Halloween costumes today while we're recording. I'm dressed up as a middle-aged woman.
1: A middle-aged man.
0: We're oh, so cute. It's matching costumes. I love it.
1: Okay. Well, we obviously put a lot of effort into our costumes. What about bugs?
0: Have you ever tried eating a bug, or like accidentally? <laughs> Have you ever accidentally eaten a bug?
1: Oh, I'm sure I've accidentally eaten bugs. Probably in fruit and vegetables, and hopefully not meat. I <laughs> mean, doesn't that sound bad? Bugs in meat. I've probably consumed a few bugs while biking. Does yeah. that count?
0: Yeah. You've developed a taste for it now.
1: Uh, No, not really. Okay. Um, Okay, so are there any bugs that are a regular part of our diet? I think there's cochineal that's used to make uh, red food dye.
0: Right, that's a pretty normal part of our diet. Like if you eat yogurt, like say raspberry yogurt, a lot of times that'll have cochineal in it.
1: Anything else? I mean, we really seem to stick to the mammals and the birds and the fish.
0: Yes, there is... I don't know if this is totally true, but I've heard that if you eat fig newtons, there's some kind of wasp larva in there. Like, that's the crunchy part. Oh. (laughs) Like, that's part of the fig. Like, it's some kind of relationship. I should have researched this before blabbing my mouth off about it. (laughs) But I've heard both sides. I've heard that, yes, that is a bug that you're eating inside of the fig that's in your fig newton. Or, you know, some people are like, absolutely not. That's an urban myth.
1: Why are we so bug averse?
0: we can see bugs doing unpleasant things yeah bugs do things like land on dog poop
1: yeah so we associate bugs with bad
0: there was a report issued by the un food and agricultural organization back in 2013 and they said that there are more than 1900 edible insect species on earth Which means that there's this incredible untapped potential on this earth that some cultures have figured out, and then other cultures are still a little bit squeamish about it. I'm in the squeamish culture.
1: Me too. (laughs) But this makes sense. You're saying bugs are something that we generally consider undesirable, so we try to get rid of them. So why not try to get rid of them by eating them so they become a food source? (laughs) And we're, we're... Killing two bugs with one stone, that kind of idea. (laughs)
0: Perhaps. (laughs) Let's try it. I made today's top five list based on the bugs that I've seen the most frequently outdoors. These are the top five edible bugs that you could eat on a backpacking trip. These ones are easily identifiable, which is important, because even though there are loads of edible insects, there are some that are poisonous. So it's important to stick to the ones that you can identify, And cook them thoroughly then you'll avoid some of those unpleasant things like rat lung disease or roundworm or meningitis which all come from eating some raw bugs
1: Mm, mmm great (laughs) stuff
0: that's why we cook our bugs right
1: so for today's top five list the top five edible bugs that you might find on a backpacking trip
0: and the first one isn't that bad. And I'm not saying it's not that bad because I've tried it, but it's it's something that doesn't sound that disgusting.
1: That if someone paid you enough, this might be the first one you'd be willing to try?
0: Yeah. I would eat earthworms. I would. With enough salt and oil, they don't sound that bad. Kind of like the French's fried onions. What? Did your mom ever make those green beans where she put fried onions on top? Oh. For Thanksgiving?
1: I know what you're talking about.
0: Okay, yeah. That's what it kind of seems like it would be like.
1: Okay, those, yeah, those fried onion bits.
0: Yeah. Hmm. It could be like that. So you just need to dig a little bit of earth, and you will most likely find earthworms. And of course, earthworms have been eating earth, and so the inside of them is all filled with dirt and gritty stuff. So you just need to put them in a little container of grass so they can eliminate all the dirt from their digestive tract, and then you can fry them up.
1: Oh, well, that just makes it so much more appetizing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's where you need to remember one of the tricks of the food industry. Add a little oil and a little salt, and people will eat cardboard. This principle basically applies to all of the bugs that we'll talk about today. Fry them up, and anything tastes good. The number two edible bug that we heartily recommend on the menu uh-huh. is ants and ant larvae. These are easy to find they're really hard to catch so you might need to use some kind of trickery like
1: like sugar water like
0: sugar water or maybe like a Snickers that you leave out oh that would do it but then if you leave out a Snickers, why, you not choices, Snickers? <laughs> why not eat the Snickers I mean I guess you could do both at the same time if you're looking for extra
1: crunch Oh, that adds to... Yeah, so I brought 200 (laughs) calories of Snickers with me, but if I lay the Snickers on the ground for a few minutes, I can pick up an additional 50 calories of ants to go with the Snickers. Yeah. Yeah, okay.
0: Bonus. You just don't want to leave it so long that you pick up like a rodent that's chewing on your Snickers. The number three edible bug is termites. I think you have to kind of pull back some rotting bark.
1: You get these... uh, well, nurse logs, these old trees that have fallen over and they're so far decayed that they're just full of termites eating them and turning them into dirt.
0: Okay, well, I've heard that with termites you can roast them in a dry pan and that some termites even have kind of a shrimp flavor. The number four edible bug is roly polies. And these are probably one of the easiest to identify because we all played with roly polies when we were kids. In fact, that might make them kind of hard to eat if you have fond childhood memories of roly-polies. And to find roly-polies, you just lift up a rotten piece of wood or really anything on the forest floor that's been there a while, and you'll find a bunch of these kind of crawling around slowly. And they're better than ants because they're slower than ants, so they're easier to catch and roast.
1: And bigger, too, so I think it's more worth your while to pick up a few.
0: Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So maybe they would make a nice uh, topping on your pasta primavera. Perhaps. Or your freeze-dried <laughs> chicken alfredo. You know, you you cook up the freeze-dried meal, and, and while that's rehydrating, you just saute a few roly-polies and just garnish the top of your pasta <laughs> with roly-polies. Right.
0: Well, you can either boil them or roast them. Whatever you do, do it all the way, because roly-polies carry roundworm. That's not something you want to be messing with. Brown worm is not as delicious as earthworm. I've heard. Oh, <laughs> right. I bet. <laughs> and the number five edible bug is grasshoppers or crickets. This is becoming more socially acceptable. Actually, hmm. it's not as weird as some of the other bugs. My sister a couple of years ago for Christmas gave me cricket flour, and she had a recipe that she gave me that was for cricket flour cookies. So we made these cookies and they tasted like regular cookies, really. With enough sugar, fat, salt, butter, anything can taste good. In fact, some people say that grasshoppers or crickets taste like almonds when they're roasted.
1: That's pretty good.
0: They're a little bit trickier to prepare. I guess you're supposed to uh, pull off their heads. And then the entrails come with the head. Lovely. Entrails They are edible. The entrails are edible. But if you take them out, it reduces the, the risk of parasites. So you're taking out the stuff that would harbor the parasites. Whether or not you remove their entrails, you will always want to cook them before eating them. And then if you don't want little bits of stuff stuck in your throat, go ahead and remove the wings and the legs. And then you can just kind of pan roast
1: them. I suppose it's kind of like a miniature fish in a way, because you, you got to catch them and you got to do a little bit of prep. You're going to gut them, essentially, like you would gut a fish. And, and with a fish, you might chop off the head and the tail and take off those fins that stick out. So same thing with grasshoppers. Pull off the legs, pull off the wings, gut it, and uh, ready to cook. Hmm. One at a time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and catching them would be really hard. Like the grasshoppers and crickets are rich in protein, but they are just so hard to catch. So you're probably better off sticking that grasshopper or cricket onto a fishing hook and trying to catch something bigger and better tasting with that cricket.
1: So it sounds like one rule that I've divined from talking about these five different bugs is that you should always cook bugs before you eat them.
0: That is a good, safe rule of thumb. Another good rule of thumb is don't eat anything that you can't identify. And especially if it looks like it's just trying to get your attention. Like if it's got those beautiful bright colors and is like all furry and is all out in the open and those yeah. bugs want to kill you. So stay away from those bugs. Also, another kind of maybe... uh Non-intuitive rule for entomophagy, which is the world of eating bugs, is if you're allergic to shrimp, shellfish, dust, or chocolate, never eat an insect.
1: I can kind of see that with shrimp and shellfish, dust, okay, but chocolate, that's interesting.
0: I have no idea why.
1: Guess they've found a correlation.
0: Maybe. And then some of you folks in the Northwest might be wondering to yourself, well, what about slugs? They're so slow. They'd be so easy to catch. I'm sure they'd be absolutely delicious.
1: And I will admit that as a kid, I roasted a few slugs.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say no on that one. Slugs are carriers of rat lung disease. It sounds so horrible that I don't think I could get past. I don't think I could get past that. Yeah. At first, like when I was first preparing this episode, I was so disgusted and thought, oh, I could never, no way. But now that I've had a chance to think of it, and like, I I don't know if I would eat the bugs as a source of food. I would maybe do it as a source of entertainment. (laughs) Like we're all sitting around the fire and we see some ants and I say, Josh, I dare you to roast those ants and put them in your meal. (laughs) Yeah. uh. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a game we will not be playing,
1: actually. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess the more you talk about something, the more you can maybe get used to the idea. Right. And if you're hungry enough, well, just maybe. Yeah, maybe. And if any of our listeners are much braver than we are and have consumed bugs, whether on a backpacking trip or somewhere else, we'd love to hear about it. We'd love to hear your experiences and also your, your perspective.
0: For today's Summit Gear Review, we're taking you outside to go through the process of setting up an MSR WhisperLite. So it's a little bit different today. We're going to divide up the Summit Gear Review, and we'll have the trial part on today's show, and then we'll have the rest of the Summit Gear Review, all the data and stuff that you'd like to know, on the show notes on our website. And you can find those show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 155. Okay, we are here in the middle of a beautiful state park and we decided to come out here on this Saturday morning to do some gear testing.
1: So we got this MSR Whisperlite. These things came out in the 80s? Yeah, MSR came out with stoves in the 70s and it was revolutionary because it was a stove that uh, mountaineers could use up in the snow to boil snow to make water and so it was a big improvement in mountaineer safety. So it makes sense it came from MSR, Mountain Safety Research. And then in the 80s they came out with the Whisperlite. And I remember these whisper lights from scout backpacking trips. I had a Coleman Peak One, which was a stove that combined the tank and the stove all in one. But MSR took a different approach. They have a stove and this hose that screws onto a bottle of fuel. Anyway, these whisper lights, everybody had these.
0: Yeah, and one of the reasons we were interested in reviewing the MSR Whisperlite is because next week we will be doing a special episode dedicated to making pizza on backpacking trips. We'll be using the Bemco Backpacker Oven, which requires a stove that uses remote fuel.
1: So all those butane stoves that we have that are super small, super compact, super convenient, Those are all out because they attach directly to the butane canister so we can't use them inside of this uh, backpacking oven.
0: And I've never used a remote fuel stove, so we decided for today's Summit Gear Review to start from ground zero the way a complete novice would do it. And that is by first pulling out the instructions.
1: It's a nice instruction card. It's plasticized. Yeah. It's like it's pretty durable.
0: Okay, so step number one. Because you're going to need it. (laughs) I'm going to need this uh, because I have no idea what I'm doing here. Step number one, it says to pour the fuel into the fuel bottle. Uh, Oh. You know what? I, I did
1: that for you. That's <laughs> the noticed. only step that I did for you.
0: Thank you. That was really sweet. So it's, it looks like the fuel bottle is filled to the proper fill line.
1: Yeah. In fact, I stopped a little bit below the fill line. So we got for room, safety. room to pump it up with air. Okay. Yeah. It's not just a safety thing. If it's completely full, then you can't pump it. There's no room for the air, which pressurizes it.
0: And based on this picture here, it looks like the amount of strokes or pumps that you give this fuel bottle is based on how full it is. So if it's half full with fuel, you would give it 30 to 40 strokes. If it's all the way full or, you know, to the fill line, you would give it 20 to 30 strokes. Oh, another thing that i want to point out is that the fuel bottle comes separately from the stove so when you buy the stove it does not come with a fuel bottle and that gives you some options you can buy a larger fuel bottle if you're going to be taking an extended trip or a smaller fuel bottle if you're just going to do uh, a couple days uh, let's see on this instruction card they have really nice pictures but they also have a detailed step-by-step guide on the other side. So we have the fuel bottle filled. The next step is to set up stove. So that means we need to unfold the pot support and legs.
1: So you skipped a few parts of step one.
0: What did I forget to do? Oh, oh, screw this special top on. See, that's why I need to read the instructions and not just look at the pretty yeah, pictures. Step one
1: has three parts. You got to read why all three parts.
0: What? That's so funny. And It's not just MSR that does that. There are a lot of... Those instructions where it's like step one and it has eight steps. In it.
1: Right. So this is a five-step process, but it's actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. <laughs> okay. Sixteen sub-steps.
0: Right. Okay. So we need to take the lid off. Uh. Let me see how this yeah, is just done. Yeah, I, I just unscrews. I just screwed it on.
1: Oh. Push it down
0: and then pull it up. Oh. Push down. Push down
1: and unscrew. Yeah, just push down and unscrew, maybe? Like a medicine bottle.
0: Right. Okay, you screwed this on really tight. Holy cow. Okay, your turn.
1: <laughs> Take a look here. Uh, yeah, I didn't know about the push and turn thing, so I probably screwed it tighter than I should have. Okay, you hold the bottle. Okay. And I'll push and turn on the cap, on the lid.
0: All right, so next time we won't screw it on as yeah. tight. There's already like a silicone ring in there that keeps it.
1: Right. And I didn't know about the push and turn up. thing. That significantly decreases the amount of energy you can put into it.
0: Yeah, and especially if it's a cold, cold oh. day, that would be really hard oh, to uh, yeah. get it would be hard to get the lid off. Okay, now we're putting this pump into the fuel bottle. And it says in the instructions to firmly tighten This time I am going to firmly tighten it because I don't want fuel leaking out while I'm trying to pump air into it. I don't want air leaking out either. And this
1: is not a push and turn to, uh, to unscrew, so that's helpful.
0: Close the pump control valve, then stroke plunger. There we go. I closed the pump control valve and I'm going to give it some pumps. Okay, I did all the pumps. I'm going to do one more pump. There we go. Go for it. Okay, now we're officially on to step two, and that is to set up the stove by unfolding the pot supports and legs.
1: Yeah, it's a little tricky. They they clip into some indentations on the edge of the stove. But you got to get this one all the way around ah, to the second indentation. There we go. To get all three legs set up.
0: Okay, so I pulled the third leg all the way around, and yeah, it just kind of clips into place. And then the second leg clips in. The third leg is already clipped in. Now I just have this kind of brass-looking tube sticking out and a little hook. There's probably something important I need to do with that. Okay, it says, lubricate the entire brass end of the fuel line with saliva or oil. Okay, here it goes. (laughs)
1: Okay, we're going with saliva this time.
0: Because that's what I have. Okay, well, it is all spitty. This is is. really... uh, (laughs) fascinating okay completely insert the brass end of the fuel line into the pump so i guess i'll keep pushing oh i heard a click place the fuel bottle on its side so pump control valve points up what is the pump control valve oh this one okay that's what we twisted Oh, it's dripping
1: yeah you haven't uh, completely attached the fuel line yet okay secure the catch arm on the pump fuel pump groove and so Yeah. So you want to get that brass line secured with the clip before you start Ah, putting the bottle on its side, I think. So
0: yeah, I think I had not pushed it in all the way. It actually goes in all
1: the way. Right, so after it clicked, it still went further.
0: Right, like about maybe less than a quarter inch. Okay, so now the last part of part two is to secure the catch arm onto the fuel pump groove.
1: That just keeps the fuel line from coming
0: out. Ah, okay. That makes sense. So it won't just pop out. I did use a lot of saliva so I can see it (laughs) popping out. Okay. So now it looks like we have it all assembled. Like this is the first two steps. Assemble the stove. Okay. Now we're on to step three, which is lighting the stove.
1: Ooh, the fun part. (laughs) The fun part.
0: The terrifying part. (laughs) It says release only a half spoonful of fuel and then light the fuel in the priming cup. A brief soccer ball-sized flame is normal.
1: So yeah, try turning it on a little bit, and you'll notice it will fill up a little bit with fuel, and we don't want it to overflow. We just want that cup at the bottom to have some fuel in it. Oh, I hear it.
0: Okay, I hear something. Yeah, there you go. Oh, okay. That looks like it's about a quarter. Ah, that's half. Okay, now I get to light it, and there will be a soccer ball-sized flame.
1: Cool. I stuck the lighter in the bag.
0: Oh, thank you. Teamwork.
1: <laughs>
0: this is only slightly terrifying for me. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. You got we it. did it. There's no screaming. I was so freaking
1: <laughs> <was gonna> scream. <laughs> okay. It lit the white gas on fire and it didn't immediately go soccer ball size. Yeah. So that's good. But now it's starting to heat up. And yeah. as that white gas heats up, it vaporizes more quickly so the flames start getting bigger.
0: So now the flames are coming up around the top of the stove.
1: They're kind of baseball-sized.
0: <laughs> Sticking with the sports analogy. <laughs> oh, Now it's softball size.
1: What's after a softball?
0: Um, a Nerf soccer ball? <laughs> you can kind of smell the white gas a little bit. There's kind of a dark of a dark smoke
1: yeah because this is not an efficient burn it's just evaporating mixing with oxygen a little bit and burning
0: right just priming it
1: so you can even see the remainder of white gas down there boiling because it's gotten that hot and now it's almost gone so you might want to read the next instruction
0: next instruction says just to wait for preheat flame to reduce in size approximately 2 minutes, then open pump control valve half a turn and wait for a steady blue flame.
1: Okay, well, get it open. (laughs) Hopefully we've still got enough heat there to, to light it. Oh yeah. It looks like we do. So you don't have to light it the second time because the stove is all heated up and the fuel comes out hot and it burns. It burns blue with no smoke. Right. And some of the fire is invisible.
0: Yeah, it's almost invisible.
1: Yeah, out here in the middle of the day, you can barely see it.
0: Right, and there's no smoke at all.
1: Just those waves of heat.
0: Yeah. For today's Backpack Hack of the Week, how to break a fallen limb. So why would you even need to snap a fallen limb?
1: For firewood, of course. But not just for firewood. Uh, What if you're stuck and you need to make a shelter? Maybe you're having some fun with some pioneering activities, building something. Or maybe you need to clear a limb off of the trail or get it out of the way.
0: Or maybe you just want to snap a fallen limb to impress your friends.
1: Or to scare them because it's Halloween.
0: (laughs) So there are three methods that we use to snap fallen limbs. And I think it's important to note at this point that we never snap limbs that are attached to the tree because that's part of the tree. But a fallen limb is what you'll find on the ground detached from the tree. So the first way to snap a fallen limb is the knee method. This is probably what you did when you were a kid. You just grab the limb with two hands, you put your knee up and you pull the limb against your knee and it snaps in half.
1: And as long as the limb isn't too big, too thick, too strong, that works all right and you don't injure yourself.
0: The second method is the two-tree method.
1: This is one of my favorite methods. You take the limb and you find two trees that are growing very close to each other, maybe just a foot apart. You can stick the limb in between the two trees, and then you can pry the limb against one tree, and it's going to push up against the other tree as well, and then it'll break off. Uh, But a word of warning, two words of warning... (laughs) One, you need to be doing this on trees that have really thick, strong bark because you don't want to be damaging the bark of the trees where you end up killing two trees just to break a limb. And number two, you can have fragments of wood flying every which direction. So don't do this with an audience around.
0: And the last way to snap a fallen limb, this one is my favorite, is the stump and jump method. So you take a limb and you lay it up against a tree stump And then you jump. This one is another one that you probably don't want to do with an audience around. And also, there is a risk of injuring yourself.
1: And this method works pretty well with a large rock instead of a stump, just depending on where you are. But as Heather just said, all three of these methods involve risk. None of these is safe. Although, can you say that using a hatchet or an axe is completely safe? Probably not. Yeah, it depends on how you you. use it, right? You just
0: introduced another Halloween buzzword. Woohoo.
1: Well, for the best effect, you should do this in the middle of the night.
0: Oh, definitely.
1: Or maybe just before everyone's falling asleep. Maybe (laughs) about midnight or so.
0: And then add like a blood curdling scream. Ooh. Very nice. (laughs) You'll never be invited into the forest again. (laughs) Well, we'll leave you today with a little bit of trail wisdom. It's a Spanish proverb. It says, walk till the blood appears on the cheek, but not the sweat on the brow. I picked this one because it said blood. Oh. But if you think about it, it is, it's talking about that rosy glow that you have on your face while you're hiking.
1: Yeah. So according to the Spaniards, walk, but not too hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you've been on a backpacking trip, share your story at thefirst40miles.com slash story. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. bug before like on purpose it was a scout camp mm. the theme was bugs oh. we got to eat bugs which bug ah it was like a uh crispy larva
1: mm. big yellow flames <laughs> the
0: size of a soccer ball
1: soccer balls yeah
0: you're missing an eyebrow <laughs> <You> made it <laughs>